Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 56, Purgatorio, canto ventiduesimo, the fifth day, late morning. Yesterday, the canto ended with an exploration of the love that Starsius had for Virgil's work, but it seems that Dante was intent on making a point about friendship, as defined in the Essics of Aristotle as well as Cicero. Since the usual suspects dropped his bomb on us, expecting us all to have succeeded at our ancient philosophy exam with a third in the first try, and so said nothing about it, I will refer to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. The term philia, which we translate as friendship, had a slightly broader meaning than just voluntary relationships. Like, I feel like I'm a stranger to my relatives, but I see families that have that basis of friendship, and they made me understand what this word really means. It's possible to be related by the closest blood ties, and just share pictures of the cat and talk about the weather. Anyway, in the framework of Aristotle's philosophy, I quote, one might like someone because he is good, or because he is useful, or because he is pleasant. And so there are three bases for friendship, depending on which of these qualities binds their friends together. If they are equally virtuous, their friendship is perfect. If, however, there is a large gap in their moral development, then although their relationship may be based on the other person's good character, it will be imperfect precisely because of their inequality. End of quote. There is a lot more than he goes into, and the article is freely available on the first page of Google if you search Friendship Aristotle Ethics, but this is, I think, enough to ponder why we were told Dante was making a point about friendship. First of all, I think either I missed it in her work or Professor Barolini missed the key point that the whole poem can be interpreted as a message on virtuous friendship, and this passage alone kind of complicates it. We meet a man who looked up to Virgil, but is then revealed to have used Virgil's own work to surpass him in virtue. So I dig some digging, and I found a recent article by Matthew Roteus Moser from Loyola University, published in the journal Religions. The abstract reads, I quote, As Dante explains in his epistle to Cangarande, the purpose of the comedy is to move the reader from a state of misery to a state of happiness. The poet himself testifies that the poem was written as a work of moral philosophy oriented to the achievement of happiness, eudaimonia, the beatific vision of God. Moreover, Dante insists on his poem's efficacy, to affect in its readers a similar moral and religious transformation as that which the poem represents through the narrative journey of the pilgrim. To put in another way, Dante represents his poem's relationship to its reader as a kind of virtuous friendship. End of quote. This is the same dynamic, I'd argue, that took place in Statius' reading Virgil. If you didn't read the chapter ahead of listening to this episode, you might be wondering why I'm off on a tangent today. Lack of sleep would be the answer, but I am not off on a tangent after all. I am laying the basis for understanding today's canto. In the words of Professor Barolini, whom I may disagree with plenty, but has a certain flair with words that I respect, if not envy, Purgatorio 22nd creates the ironclad vis of a painful paradox. 
We witness a superior human being who is not saved and who guides others less superior on the human scale of values to salvation. The canto begins with the standard rite of passage of the elimination of the pea from Dante's forehead, declaring blessed are those who thirst for justice, and a funny moment with Dante following the two souls with a lot less effort than he used to. And we hear Virgil telling Statius that ever since Juvenal had gone to the limbo and told him about Statius' love for him, the affection had been returned. Personally, I'm curious about why Juvenal would go and say, hey man, my mate Statius is a huge fan, huge, but I guess we have some bigger fishes to fry, so I'll keep my curiosity for now. Virgil appears to this friendship and asks Statius how come he was culpable of greed given his great wisdom. What follows is probably one of my favorite scenes in the poem. Satsis laughs, saying that as a matter of fact, Virgil is drawing the wrong conclusion from the fact they met in that terrace, for he had been guilty of the opposite extravagance. In fact, it was Virgil's own words in Genade, which he quotes, that led him to understanding and repentance. To what impellers thou not, O cursed anger of gold, the appetite of mortal men. And that's the Longfellow translation, by the way. So, we are told now that, in fact, the terraces expiate a sin and its opposite sin. I'm not sure I am convinced, though, that the kind of extravagance that would be sinful isn't just another form of greed, just not of money, but in, like, in the way that ordering else would be, wealth would be. Sorry, Plenty of saints have led extravagant lives in the way that they disposed of their fortunes, but it was all in service of the poor, so it was ultimately oriented towards the good and, the, and became a virtue. When we spend on ourselves, then we are being greedy for what we get out of these things that we spent the money on. Even in doing charity, we could be greedy for the good opinion of others and the feeling of pride that comes from seeing us as a good person. I would say it's more like a different way in which the sin manifests in our life. Santio was also explained how he became a Christian, but kept the pretense of paganism going for fear of persecution, which resulted in a lengthy stay with the Acidiosi. This, of course, is also a convenient way for Dante to explain away why Stanzio's poetry was never Christian, since the likely fictional conversion of the poet gave him the opportunity to write about a Christian interpretation of some of Virgil's works. Virgil is like someone walking in the night with a lamp that he carries on his back, therefore lightening the path of those who walk behind him, but not benefiting himself from the same light. Then the discussion moves on to other literary figures and starts his curiosity about their whereabouts, and this list includes both actual people and Carlson from the Thebaid, which walk the border between real and fictional. Not that it's the first time that we see this happen. Anyway, the three travellers then enter the sixth terrace and the conversation between the two Roman poets, which Dante is just enjoying like the proverbial fly on the wall, is interrupted when the walk is interrupted by a tree. It's like a pine tree upside down and it smells amazing and the river flows upwards through its branches. When they approach it, a voice warns them not to touch it and then it proceeds to enunciate some examples of temperance. The Blessed Virgin Mary at the wedding of Cana, thinking about the decorum of the hosts. The ancient Roman women who only drank water because of their sobriety in spirit, translating into sobriety in lifestyle. Then the prophet Daniel who turned down food and received wisdom instead. And then we have the time when humanity was satisfied with wild nuts and the water of the river, 
and finally St. John the Baptist in the desert, leaving off locusts and honey, and the canto ends with praise to the great saint, and we'll have to wait until tomorrow for the traveler's reaction. Ciao! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is Panfer 10 or Ets if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Chic or on my blog www.chicancatholic.com.